why don't we thank this wonderful band? They're, these are tremendous folks. We even had a father-daughter combo tonight with a father on vocals and a daughter on the violin. I think that's terrific. Yeah, you can clap for that too. It's wonderful to have you all here this evening and to be here as a, as a section of the body of Christ to look at emotional, healthy spirituality. Um, a couple things real quick. First of all, we want to receive the offering this evening, we want you to be able to continue to worship by your giving. So if the ushers will come right now and you can just start receiving the, office, the, the offering. We, we prayed for all of this at the front end and thank the Lord for it. So if you'll just, and if you're a guest with us tonight and, and you just want to fill out a little connection card and put that in the offering plate, that would be tremendous. Um, two things real quickly. One is that there is a, a book that aligns generally with what we are speaking to these next seven weeks, and it's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It is in the Resource Center. It's in the bookstore out there, but there was a run on them last Wednesday night, and they ran out. And so there are more there now if you wanted to pick one of those up. It's not a requirement. It's just if you want that as a reference. Also, we have the Emotional Health Inventory that goes along with this study, and uh, Many of you got them last week, and, but there are others at the guest services. So if you didn't get one of those and would like to get it, fill it out. It's for your purposes, not a test. It's just an inventory for yourself, sort of self-assessment. So what are we doing in this series? What is it that we're trying to uh, accomplish? Well, first of all, the pastoral team is trying to accomplish something within ourselves. The pastoral team is going through this same study when we meet together on Tuesday mornings for the next seven weeks. So we have this book and we're going through it. And because if we're asking you to go through it or look at it, we need to be able to do it. And um, we, we think it's something that's, that's pivotal in, in a lot of ways. Last week when we were talking, I, I said when I was a young college president, I was 38 years old and I'd been in the office a couple of years and I went in to see my doctor because I was having chest pains and he gave me all these tests and charged me a bunch of money and then he said, you're under stress. See, now I didn't, I knew that. I didn't need him to, I didn't need to give him that money for him to tell me that. But then, but then he said, let me show you this. And I mentioned this last week. And he drew, he drew three circles or ovals, depending. And he said, this is your body. This is your spirit. And this is your will in emotions, intellect. This is, and of course, this isn't, these aren't perfect, but they're, and there's overlap. He said, if you get a virus or something, it's going to bleed out into your emotions and touch your spirit, and it's going to wear you down. If you, if you get emotionally upset, and we know this, many diseases have emotional connections, many sicknesses or illnesses or conditions. If this gets bad, it goes both ways. And if you sin... It comes this way. So those are all connected. And every time I went to see him, he told me this. He said, have I done this for you before? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm doing it for other people now. I'm telling them because, you know. But the fact is we're all connected. And oftentimes in discipleship things, in spiritual formation, we emphasize this. We emphasize memorization of Scripture or daily devotions or other classic spiritual disciplines. 
But we don't necessarily speak to this, and that's what this study is attempting to speak to. doesn't mean it's the be-all and end-all of everything. It just means that we want to take a look at ourselves in a little different way. Here's a quotation. In emotionally healthy churches, people take a deep, hard look inside their hearts, asking, what's going on that Jesus is trying to change in me? The psalmist says, oh, Lord, you know me. Before a, before a word is in my mouth, before, before thoughts are in my mind, you know them already. You know, I'm a junior higher. I was brought up in church, and I'd be sitting in church. And when you're 14 and you go to, like, services every night for a week, it's just, it's not easy. It's, and, and so I'm sitting there, and my mind is wandering, and I'm drawing little pictures, and I'm checking out the girls across the aisle. And, and the preacher says, God knows what you're thinking. I'm going, whoa, you know, it's too late. He already knows. And I'm still here, so... You know, it didn't strike me dead. But, I, but the idea is that when we inventory our lives in any way, whether it's a physical inventory or a spiritual inventory, emotional, and again, those are all connected, good things can happen if it's a guided inventory. Many of us took the personal inventory last week. I'm not going to ask you how many of you took it, but I took it. And... Uh, when I got done taking it, because you have all these categories you're filling about, like I wanted to burn it. And I, now maybe some of you felt like that. I'm saying, what do you mean I'm an adolescent over there? I'm 70 years old. How could I be an adolescent there? Don't tell me I'm a child, right? And I got to tell you that when it comes to setting boundaries, I'm a kid. I don't, do, I don't say no very well to things. I, I see everything that comes along like as an opportunity. And so then you end up bald. And uh, for all you ball guys, I'm sorry. It, uh, I, won't, I won't do it for you. The inventory is simply a tool to help me assess things. Because there's a growing, as we, as we grow, people start understanding that a person's life is like an iceberg with a vast majority of who we are lying beneath the surface like that. That's the Titanic. The Titanic hit a part of the iceberg that was beneath the surface, just a glancing blow. And recent discoveries have shown that even though there was a 225-foot gash, that a hole all the way through was only the size of a refrigerator of that whole ship. It was 800 and some feet long. But it was that one thing that sank the ship. But emotionally maturing people invite God to bring awareness and to transform our beneath-the-surface layers. And that's what this time is about. We want to invite the Lord to transform us. And I, I was looking at this picture of the Titanic, and I'm, I was thinking, how, how, how many of my relationships have been sort of clobbered because I had this below-the-surface stuff, and I didn't, I didn't really realize that that's where I was speaking from. I was coming from this over, thing over here, and it wasn't, it wasn't helping the relationship. So much of what we have in our past, and all I have is past. I, you know, I hope I have tomorrow, but there's no guarantee I have tomorrow. But what I do know is I have 70 years and six months of past and next week, Pastor Brent is going to help speak to that. But, but you find stuff out when you move into relationships with people. It just pops up from places. Like, 
Like the first time I raised my voice when we were married. I know for some of you it's hard to believe. Trust me. I don't scream or anything, but I, Ruth says I have a tone. And, and so I, I, I raised my voice, and Ruth started crying. And we're just young. We're 21 years old. What do we know? And she starts crying. And I'm saying, woo, woo, you know, because guys are, are, you know, you're taught you don't cry unless you lose a leg or something. So you, something big's going on here. And, and she said, I never heard my father raise his voice. And he's, Roy Blakely is a tremendous man. He's with Jesus now. But wonderful man, steady as a rock. Didn't, didn't get real emotional. And he's solid and wise and just steady. I hated him. No, I didn't. But, but he just, you know, I wanted to be like that. But she'd never heard that. And so when you get in relationships and this other stuff pops up, we don't know always where that's coming from. The things that comprise looking beneath the surface are these. I need to develop an awareness of what I'm thinking and doing. I need to develop an awareness of what I'm thinking and doing. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew who he was and what he was doing. You remember the passage in Scripture where people wanted to make him a king and they wanted him to go up to Jerusalem? And he says, no, the time's not yet. I know what I'm about. I know what my mission is. And I know who I am. And because he knew who he was and what he was about, he was able to express his emotions in an unashamed and non-embarrassed way. Because he knew who he was and what he was about, he was able to express his emotions in appropriate and non-embarrassed ways. All of us have emotions, so it isn't a matter of do we have them or not, it's how do we express them is it appropriate? Are they healing? Are they helpful? Or are they sledgehammers to those around us? I have a dear friend, pastored a church in Naperville, Illinois for 31 years. His name was Bob Schmidgall, big guy, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, died of a heart attack sitting in a restaurant, flew out for his service, and they had the viewing of his body in the church Hundreds of people were there. He had a dear, dear friend, an Ethiopian gentleman by the name of Betta. And Betta pastored a large congregation in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And they were brothers. And people were filing by, and it got quiet for a moment. And all of a sudden, the side door burst open, and Betta comes running in. And he's a pastor. He's a, he's a person who's mature, and he, and he falls down on the ground in front of the casket. And then he leans up, and he puts his hand on, on Bob's body, and he says, Bob, I love you. You can't be gone. I love you. We need you, Bob. And, and it went on for some time, and it was, it was like wailing. Then he came over, and he sat down next to me after a while. And he said, forgive me, Dick, but in, but in my country, that's how we express love. This is how we express love. This is how we care for people. It was an appropriate moment. Now, it's not like Western Germanic thing. It's an Ethiopian thing. But the fact is that it was from his heart. And when you look at Scripture and you look at Jesus, what, do, you, do, you remember, do you remember when you had those, some of you grew up in church and you had Sunday school contests 
for scripture memorization and you got points or some little gift and and you always went for the shortest verse like what was the shortest verse anybody remember <laughs> we all know that we all got a point you know i i guess but the fact is it's not about getting a point i think in the text it's making a point that here is the creator of the universe who who is both God and man in ways we don't understand like Pastor Jeff talked about last Sunday. But part of who he is as a human being is that he responds in the same way we do. At the graveside of Lazarus, he wept over the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19.41. I'm not going to read all these verses, but Luke 19.41, it says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew what was coming. Mark 10, 14, he was angry with his disciples. In, in Mark 10, 31, when they tried to keep the kids away from him, you know, it says that he was indignant. He was ticked because these guys were trying to keep the kids away. Well, how can God be ticked? How can Jesus the Christ be angry? Isn't anger wrong? Apparently not. But if you let the sun go down on it, it starts eroding and corroding one's soul. So anger in expressed in appropriate ways could be right. Matthew 8, 10, he showed astonishment. So how do we pay attention to our emotions? How do we sort of get a, an angle on our emotions? Well, one simple way, Pete Scazzaro, who wrote this book, one thing he said is, is that you listen to your bodies. We listen to our bodies. This is not a yoga class here. I'm just saying we listen to our bodies. You know, when you, when you have the knot in the stomach or you have a tension headache or you have sweaty palms or foot tapping or insomnia, maybe the question is, what is my body telling me about what I feel? What is my body telling me about what I feel? Twice in the last 10 days, I woke up in the night with my stomach tense. I was anxious about something the next day. Why? Why would I be anxious about something the next day? Well, I was anticipating what might be. I don't know how our subconscious stuff works. I don't know how that works. And I had to say, when I woke up, I had to say, Lord, this situation is yours. I can't, you know, we... We talk about 98% of the stuff you worry about never happens. And I'm saying, yeah, but what about the other two? I mean, you know, what about that, you know? <laughs> so self-aware, being aware of me, being aware of how my body and my, is talking to me about my feelings, that's not self-centeredness. Self-awareness is not self-centeredness or self-absorption. We don't, we don't need Bible classes on self-centeredness. I mean, we go there naturally. I, I don't need a couple of verses on self-absorption. I mean, I'm right there, you know. I need to be self-aware, but more aware of the Most High God. It's that connection when the psalmist says, Lord, you know me. See, I used to see that as a threat. I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm, I'm dead meat. He knows me. I've come to believe that the highest need in human beings is to be known. 
and still wanted. To be known and still wanted. A little more on that in a few minutes. But self-awareness means that I need to enter my world in a different way. Not just the 10% of surface, but the, the 90% below the surface. If I want to be spiritually mature, I need to be emotionally mature. When we identify feelings and express them in valid ways, it frees us and everyone around us. When I do something, when I react, and I stop and say, why did, why did I do that? Where did that come from? I have a brother-in-law who's a counselor, family counselor for many years, and he used to talk about gunny sacking. You know, you know what gunny sacking is. We all just married couples know what gunny sacking is. You know, something happens and you don't react, you just stick it in the sack. You know? For those of you who are younger, a gunny sack was a burlap bag of some kind. They used to keep potatoes in. And so some, something else happens and she says something and you stick it. In the, and then something else happens over here and you stick it. And, then you, and you just keep getting the gunny sack full. And one morning, hardly anything is said, just some little thing that makes you tense and you go, wham! You know, and the person has no idea where that came from. Where did that come from? Well, I've been saving stuff up, you know. I've been keeping it in the gunny sack over here. Have you ever thought about why the Psalms connect with us so much? About half the Psalms, 75, were written by the psalmist David. David had an arduous journey in a lot of ways. I mean, he's the, he's the youngest kid. He's selected to be king. He's got all of these things going on, and, and he failed miserably at certain points. But God says that he was a man after his own heart, and you, so you have this sort of tension but when you read the Psalms, he's free to express what he feels in the Psalms and also what he knows. See, that, that relationship between what I know and what I feel is where we as believers in Jesus have such a huge possible advantage if we explore it. Because... Here, here is David, and he, one psalm he says, Lord, you're tremendous. Nobody's like you. You can, you, you can do everything, and I'm in your hand. And, I, and the next psalm he says, where'd you go? Where are you? So he's up and down, it's true, but he always comes back, when I read his psalms, he always comes back to the baseline. Lord, you know me. You know my thoughts. There's nowhere I can go that you are not. So how do I start developing self-awareness? How do I do this? You say, okay, you got to be self-aware. Whatever that means, we got to do that. First, first, thing is, first thing is I need to ask the why or the what's going on question. When feelings well up in us that we know aren't healthy, we may not know where they come from, what do we do with that? Do we just express it? Or do we ask the question, why am I so anxious? Why am I impatient? Why am I sharp with others? You know, I, I have to tell you that, that I don't want to be sharp, but sometimes in my history, not so much in the last three days, <laughs> but in my history sometimes 
I'll say things that, you know, and I'll never forget walking into the house. I walk into the house one day, and we have these four kids under the age of seven. And, you know, and it's almost totally Ruth's responsibility because I'm God's man of faith and power, a young pastor in Urbana, Illinois, out trying to win the world for Jesus, having business lunches and leading people to Jesus, and it's tremendous. And, I, and I, so I come running into the house one day, and I, just, I go in to get something and, I, and get a little lunch, and I say something. It, you know, it probably wasn't good. It was, just a, it was probably in the form of a question, but it's not really a question. Anybody ever do that? You ask a question, but it's really a statement? And Ruth didn't say anything. She just fixed lunch. And when I got ready to go back to the office, it was back in the day of three-piece suits. She just straightened my tie and kissed me on the cheek and said, Now, are you, are you going to go back and tell all those people about Jesus? Now, see, some people might see that as sarcasm. <laughs> I consider it Jehovah's nudge. You know, wives have a way of just... Well, I don't need to explain it to those of you here. In order to deal with such questions, I need to be able to reflect about things. I need to be able to reflect. We live in a world that is picking up speed. We have to communicate instantly. We get text messages. We've got to get it. I don't, personally, I don't think we're designed for that. Now, I text and I email. I do all that. But our, it's picking up speed. The idea of of contemplation or reflective behavior in our world is almost foreign. Blaise Pascal, who was a believer, was a French philosopher, says this, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. All men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. When I was a kid, some of you heard, heard me tell this story. When I was a kid in Oakland, California, it was fifth grade, it's dark in my room. When it was dark in your room and you're in the fifth grade, it makes you a little nervous. So I'd sing every song I knew, every school song, every church song, I'd sing them all. And, and, and then when I got done, I'd start calling my mom, and we lived in a little bungalow. Just a little, she was only 20 feet away in the front room. And I'd say, Mom, Mom, Mom. You say, Why don't you just get out of bed and go find your mom? Hey, hey, when you're in the fifth grade and it's dark in your room, you are not getting out of bed to go find your mom because the guy under the bed will grab your ankle. So you're not doing that. And if he doesn't get you, the one in the closet will. So you're not going there. Pretty soon she'd say, What is it, Dick? I'd say, Oh, nothing. I just needed to know you were there. I'm 70 years old. I don't call my mother anymore for Pete's sake. I say, God, God, God. He says, what is it, Foth? I say, oh, nothing. I just needed to know you were there. And then when I know he's there, I start making demands. Well, I got this thing here. You need to do, some, do something. And he says, you don't do anything, Foth. You just be still and know that I am. When I get still and can reflect on who he is and who I am, that's when I get below the surface. What would happen if we just took five minutes a day 
to just be still. It's easier for me to do now than it used to be when I was young, because I had a lot to prove when I was young. You know how it is. You young guys were trying to make our mark. And we, so I was going like every minute, and I thought that more activity meant more productivity, and of course that's a fallacy and all that kind of stuff. But I was doing all that, all in the name of God. But being able to be still and reflect brings a wellspring to our souls. I love that song we sang tonight. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. You know the one. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. Let's sing it again. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. All men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. When I take my feelings to God, and say, what does this mean? Why do I feel this way? When you read the Psalms, the Psalms are interactive. This is the God who wants us to talk with him and to listen to him. What do I need to see about me here in this moment? What am I learning about me in this moment, about life? I've told you who are sort of regulars on Wednesday night, I've told you this story before. But I love this story because it captures this. As a matter of fact, I just told her recently. There's a lady who's now with Jesus. Her name is Basilea Schlink. Basilea Schlink was a young woman in World War II who lived near Darmstadt, Germany. And Darmstadt, Germany was saturated, bombed by the Allies in December of 1944. 70,000 people were left homeless. 12,000 people died in 20 minutes. There was a young group of girls, Lutheran girls, who felt that was God's judgment on them for not standing up to Hitler when he was putting Jews in the camps. And they said, if we survive the war, we will come back to this place and we will create a place of peace, a place of reflection, a place where people can find peace in their souls. And they did that. They came back after the war. There was nothing in Germany. There was no, were no supplies. I mean, it was devastated. And they created a compound, a big acreage called Canaan Land. You can go there. It's 45 minutes south of Frankfurt. And long story short, they built a chapel by themselves, and trucks would just show up at the end of the day, say, we have an extra half yard of concrete. Can you ladies use it? And they're out there in their long habits. It was an evangelical Lutheran sisterhood. They're digging the ditches and doing all this stuff, planting the gardens. And they dug a big pond area so they could get water 
But the hydrologist said, there is no water in this area. But in faith, they said, we, we believe we're supposed to be here, and we're going to dig. So they put flagstone down and so forth. And a farmer down, this, down the road sold a field, and they drilled down, and they hit bedrock. And when they hit bedrock, they had what they called their miracle tent. And they went over in this, in this tent, because they didn't have housing, and they, and they said, we believe God is trying to say something to us in this particular situation where we hit bedrock. And they started asking the question, what is the bedrock in my life? What is it that God is trying to punch through in order to um, speak to me, in order to change me? And they started to share things with each other and, and, and the Lord broke them and brought them together. And the farmer came along and said, I just sold another piece. Let's try it one more time. And they, and they drilled again and they punched through and hit the largest reservoir of fresh water in the whole region that wasn't on the maps. It was an artesian well. And when Ruth and I went there in 1973, we, we had lunch with them and they came around and they poured water into our glasses, these young, and this was next generation, of course, they came around, poured water, and I tasted it. It was like the sweetest water you've ever tasted. And I, I turned to the young lady and I said, that's tremendous water. And she looked at me and said, all of the heavenly Father's water is good. And I said, that's what I'm thinking. When I look under the surface, sometimes I find bedrock. I find places where I have not been willing to go, and the Lord wants to punch through. I can't do it myself. But he, by his spirit, wants to do it. Secondly, there's a link between the gospel and my emotional health. And I want to hurry along here. There's a link between the good news and my emotional health. There are two messages you read in Scripture. There's more than this, but at least two. And the one message is, I'm flawed, I'm weak, I'm undisciplined, I'm essentially awful at the core, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and you have these songs about what a wretch I am and what a worm I am and... One of my friends calls it worm theology. But the fact is that there's nothing about me that can get into heaven that's good. Nothing about me that, that is good enough that compares to God. So that's on the one side. The other statement is, and here I am this way, and God loves me absolutely in Jesus. Sometimes I get nervous about looking beneath the surface because I, I'm scared I might find bad stuff, and sure enough, I, you know, I got stuff. But what if you looked beneath the surface and found some good stuff that you didn't really know about? I think we will. See, we're doing this together. It's not just you guys, that's me. We're all doing this together. The basis for growing emotionally healthy is found in this idea. I am perfectly loved and accepted by God because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for me, and I can come out of hiding. I am perfectly loved and accepted by God because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for me, and I can come out of hiding. He says, Ali, Ali, oxen free. What, what is that? I don't know what that means, but I, you know. But I looked it up today because I never knew what that meant, that game when you play hide-and-seek and you call everybody in. And it comes, I think, from all ye, all ye outs are free. Everybody can come in now because the game has been won. The game has been won when Jesus went to the cross. And I get in free. 
And when he finds me hiding, as the poet says, behind my successes and my guilts and my failures and my ambition, he tags me and says, you're it. And I believe he means it. I am free to fail. I'm free to say I was wrong. I don't have to have all the answers. I can relax. Because I am perfectly loved and accepted by God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for me. One of my most awkward moments this summer, just a few weeks ago, came when I had to go next door and ask forgiveness of two teenage boys. Our neighbor boys, great kids, great young men. And they had gotten a bunch of mulch they didn't need, and we had agreed to a price, and it, somewhere along the line, I got it in my head that it was a little too much to pay. And instead of talking to the father, I spoke to one of the boys, and it, it was nothing. I mean, it was not, I don't know. I, I don't know what was going on. I, I guess I have to go explore what that was, but I, I don't know where that came. And it came off like I didn't trust the boys. And when I tried to pay them, the older boy said, no, we're going to go back and find out what it actually was. And, you know, and he, he was being, like, mature. And I had to go next door and apologize. And the first thing he said was, you know, I think that was a little too high-priced anyway. It's okay. And I said, no, no, sit down right here. And their mom was in the room. And I just said, I just came, I just came to ask forgiveness because I was wrong. And I'm telling you this because this is one of my more emotionally mature moments. There are others that I'm not going to do. You know, it's going around the world for Pete's sake. Why would I tell you? And I said, you know, it's only a few dollars. And I'd pay 100 bucks for us to have our friendship. At that moment, I may have grown a bit in my emotional maturity. Martin Luther said it this way, the good news can never be urged or taught or repeated enough. The gospel can never be told enough. There's an old gospel song that says, tell me the old, old story. The ones who know it, have known it longest, love it best. You want to hear the story again and again because you know what happens when you get to the end of the story. Somebody gets to respond. Somebody gets to have their lives transformed from the inside out. A believer's righteousness is utterly separate from anything we do. I can't do enough to win his favor. Luther said we do nothing for it, we give nothing for it, we only receive it and allow another to work, and that is God. Simply stated, you can be yourself, you can come out of hiding because you have nothing left to prove. How much of what I do has to do with proving that I'm somebody or I got this or one-upsmanship or this thing or that thing? And I got to tell you, I don't like teaching this because it makes me look at myself and say, I think you got some places that you could grow, both. But growing emotionally healthy sometimes is messy, but the revelation of God's free grace gives us the courage to face truth about ourselves. We can walk out on the tightrope of taking a chance to look at myself because the gospel is the safety net 
Whatever you find, he already knows it. He knows my thoughts, so I, you know, that's not the big deal. It's all about me finding out about it. He already knows about it, whatever it is. We have a safety net in the gospel of Jesus. But we don't have to pretend. We don't have to mask or excuse or ignore. Rather, we can face and expose and sometimes conquer. No longer does stuff have to be in ball and chain. Sometimes I don't even know I'm weighted down by certain things. But God, in his grace, can gently bring me along. And sometimes there's pain in it. I love that piece in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce where the, the, the angel confronts a guy who's got something going on. And he says, I'll take care of that for you. And he said, wow, that hurts. He says, well, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. I just said I'd take care of it for you, you know. We are designed in the image of God, everybody. But he wants to shape us into the image of Christ. There is a glittering image that sometimes we put forward that um, is a mask, various things. This is the way I want you to see me. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the great challenges of my life is that I like to be liked. Now, I don't know if any of you go there, you know, but I don't, I don't stand up here and say, boy, I hope they hate this. You know, that's not where I am. But people bring balance to your life. I was walking down the hall some, it was last year sometime, and a gentleman stopped me and said, just want to know that, want you to know that I love it when you talk. I just love it. I say, well, thank you. Thank you very much. He said, but I talked to my 20-year-old son. He doesn't do much. You don't do much for him. See, so it kind of balances out. You know, that's, that's, how that, that's how that works. Oh, Lord, you know me. You know my thoughts. You know my words. You know what I need. And I want to authentically open my life to you and look at me through your eyes in these weeks ahead and say, show me, mature me emotionally and spiritually in ways that I haven't done before or areas that I need to address that I've been afraid of or just don't know about. Help me do that. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And um, when I... stand with me tonight if you're able please listen to how the apostle Paul reflects on this time together here's a time where Jesus says do this in remembrance of me when you're together the Lord's table is a time for Reflecting on history, on what he did and what he's done for me, on my present and on my future. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever we drink it, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Nothing of my salvation or my wholeness comes from me. It comes from what he did. He knew who he was, and he knew what he was doing. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to, here's the word, examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Built into the body of Christ in the ordinances of the church is this idea of looking at ourselves so that we can be one. So, he takes the bread, the Lord does, and he blesses it, thanks the Father for it. This represents the body of which we're a part. We come together in him, across the nations, across the races, across gender, across all the lines. He says, in, in me you are one. Thank you, Lord, for this bread symbolizing our life in you. As we receive this, we examine our own hearts and say thank you for what you have done in helping us come to you and to be together. In Jesus' name, let's take and eat.